title this morning again is Devotion or Disregard. So we look at two opposing families with very different lives, very different things coming out of their lives, and yet very um, similar purposes as granted by the Lord. Um, They've gone different directions. We'll see that here in 1 Samuel. If you would, follow along as I read, starting at verse 11, and I'll finish at verse 26 this morning. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. And she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? They would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. A call from our passage this morning is in your devotion to the Lord, grow in the Lord. And that is the answer to the question that I posed earlier. What effect does devotion to God have on my life? What should I expect to see change if my life is devoted to God? I wonder what kind of parameters you put in your mind for what devotion really looks like. If you were to think about the person in your life that you know is the most devoted to God, how do you determine that? I think oftentimes we like to determine it based on how many church events they go to, how many Bible studies they attend or perhaps lead, how much they give if you happen to be privy to that information, how generous they are in their everyday life. Perhaps their devotion to God is judged by you based on their success. How is God responding to this person's life? Is he blessing them financially, emotionally, in their family? Are they getting good health? Do these things signify whether someone is truly devoted to the Lord? I think Samuel already gave us the answer of what this really looks like. 
And this is such an interesting passage to look at because the author intentionally bounces back and forth between the story of Elkanah's house and the story of Eli's house. And as you read it, you can see the author doesn't want us to just simply perhaps take part of this passage this morning, ignore Eli's sons, and just say, look at how wonderful Hannah's life ended up. Remember last week, David shared with us from Hannah's song, her prayer in chapter 2, and thank you again, David, for preaching last week on an excellent passage to remind us of the victory that we have in Christ, and that we can experience that victory day by day, and that it is in things like humility and in, in the, the um, taking down of the prideful that, that the Lord shows his salvation, shows his victory, and shows his holiness. And so this story, as we follow the author's track, kind of makes sense. We see Hannah declaring some things that we'll bring up in the next few passages because we're going to see them happen to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In your devotion to the Lord, grow in the Lord. What will happen if a life is lived in devotion to God? They will necessarily grow. That's what we see Samuel doing here. If you look back at the beginning of our passage from this morning, Elkanah went home to Ramah. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Just for the sake of recap, remember, Hannah and Elkanah were not able to have any babies, so Elkanah had another wife. Bad idea, right, kids? We just learned about that. It's not a good idea for families to have a dad and a mom and a mom and, or, or two dads and one mom or any of that combination, right? God set forth the pattern. Adam and Eve... Eve created for Adam, Adam created for Eve, two parts of one whole. And of course, Penina, Hannah's rival, or Elkanah's other wife, was a rival, was an enemy to Hannah. Was one who pointed to the seeming misfortune of her life as God's disapproval in her life. Well, Hannah found the opposite to be true. She found herself in her humility and accepting the peace of God's sovereign plan she could rest in knowing that God's going to do whatever God's going to do. I'm allowed to be a part of that plan, whether I am a mother, whether I'm a father, whether I have a big successful job, whether wherever I am, doesn't matter. God calls us up into his plan. And God did indeed, after all the years of childlessness, grant Hannah a son. That was Samuel. And Hannah was able, because of her theological perspective, because of what she knew about God, to devote Samuel to the service of the Lord all of his days. And now our passage today shows how that's playing out. And it's refreshing, moms and dads, to know that we can, with a plan to devote our children to the Lord, trust the Lord that something like what Samuel's doing will be true for our kids as well. Elkanah goes back to Ramah, and the first thing we see about Samuel is that he was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. He went right into what he was devoted to doing. It is refreshing in this passage as we see the wickedness of these two priests to hear of the progress and growth of Samuel in his devotion to the Lord. Interesting little comment here to be made about our passage. You'll notice in verse 11, if you look at it, that we have a comment about Samuel's progress and then we move immediately in verse 12 to the story of Eli's worthless sons, verses 12 through 17. Then in verses 18 through 21, we come back from Eli's worthless sons to Samuel's blessed family. 
Elkanah and Hannah would continue to come up to the house of the Lord and offer sacrifice yearly. We also have this beautiful passage here about how as Samuel was ministering before the Lord, his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. Do you ever think like, this is obviously a part of the bigger story. The author is including this on purpose. But I think it is also a sweet and tender motherly moment to, to point out to us that Hannah didn't cease to be Samuel's mother just because she devoted him to the Lord. And so it is for us moms and dads that as we rightly see our children, not as our own, but as gifts of God, as stewardships, temporary stewardships at that, that our role is not diminished. It's fulfilled in this devotion to the Lord. So it's a tender thing for the writer to include that Hannah used to make him a new set of clothes every year. Just a simple, practical way that she would joyfully continue to serve Samuel as his mother. But we move again from Samuel's blessed family in verses 22 to 25 to Eli's rebuke of his sons, where we get a very important theological line here. If you notice what he says in verse 25, if someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Eli's warning is you are sinning against the Lord, not just against God's people, but you are taking, literally, physically taking things that belonged to God, the offering, those three-pronged forks that were going into the vessel for the food as it's being cooked. Interestingly enough, if we go back to the law, we see that the priests were afforded a portion of every sacrifice. I mean, their job was the temple. They weren't out there farming so much. If they were working in the temple, they relied on the sacrifices of God's people to be their daily food. Well, unfortunately, Eli's sons have turned this around and not, not let it be what it truly is, that the sacrifice is for the Lord and that there is provision for us in that. They've reversed it and said, the sacrifice is for me and the Lord can have whatever's left over. So they've reversed it. Eli rebukes his son for this. And then again in verse 26, we have one more notion. Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. For the sake of sounding smart, I'll tell you that this is an inclusio. Now you can sound smart too. An inclusio is when you have two statements on the outside of a passage in the Bible that seem to frame the story. In this case, they frame the story as opposite statements. And yeah, we have, you know, that interlude in the, in the middle here with Samuel's family being mentioned and how even after Samuel was born, Hannah uh, continued to conceive then and bore three sons and two daughters. But this beginning and end statement of our passage this morning is a literary device to help us see that the big thing you need to get from this passage is that there's a contrast. And today we'll call that contrast the difference between devotion to the Lord and disregard for him. Two families then are mentioned, one that is devoted to the Lord and one that is disregarding the Lord. And the irony of it all, who would you expect out of the two families? The family of nobodies, as it were, or the family of priests to be devoted to the Lord? We would expect those who were the priests, right? You should, we, we, we shouldn't think this, but we often think that it's the pastor, the missionary, the Sunday school teacher that are the holiest of people. God's word shows us that that's not always the case. Oftentimes we find true holy devotion to the Lord in the unexpected smaller seeming families rather than those who are up front and leading God's people in worship. 
rather than leading, of course, Hophni and Phinehas are disrupting worship, bringing worship into themselves. This act of sticking the fork into the dish and pulling out whatever they got and taking it for themselves was not an effort of randomizing and saying, well, just whatever I get. No, they were very specific. Did you notice that? Because they also wanted the fat. Now, specifically, the law of God tells us that the fat was to be burned up to the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas are literally disregarding God's word and taking for themselves everything that they want. They're not just saying, hey, whatever comes up in the sense of maybe it'll be a little, it's okay, I'll just deal with it. No, whatever comes up, meaning they stuck their fork in and they moved it around and they were looking for, oh, yeah, I feel that feels like the right piece. Yes, I'll take this. And then the poor Israelite looking into the dish might look down and go, that was most of the offering. I didn't come here to worship the priest. I came here to worship God. To put it into perspective for us today, it would be something like me standing at the front door before you come in and demand that you produce your paycheck for the week. And that from that paycheck, we have it dispersed into dollar bills and that I would then take whatever I feel is necessary, depending on how difficult of a congregant you are, perhaps. Just kidding, none of you are difficult. But... Whatever the thing might be that would say, oh, I think I deserve this for all these things, and then going into worship. That's, that's not how we do things here. In fact, the pastor, the elders, we are not even privy to the information of how much anybody gives at any point. So there is no possibility for leaders in the church to, there shouldn't be at least, any possibility for leaders in the church to stick their hands, as it were, in the pockets of members of the church and pull up whatever they would like. But this is what Hophni and Phinehas are doing. There are three theological points I'd like you to absorb from this text, from this idea of devotion and the disregard that we're seeing from these wicked leaders. First of all, the Lord calls all his people to grow in him. The Lord calls all his people to grow in him. This is a problem in our American Christianity because in a lot of cases we say, make sure you get saved and say the sinner's prayer Maybe you should get baptized, maybe get a certificate, maybe do some of these things, and then you're good. The idea of being devoted to Christ and following the call in his life is to continue to grow, Second Peter tells us in chapter 3.18. Grow, continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, devotion to the Lord results in growth in righteousness. Devotion to the Lord results in growth in righteousness. And the fruit of that, as we see in Samuel's life, is favor and stature. That is reputation and grace. Grace before the Lord. And that he would be known as someone who is devoted to the Lord. Remember, I asked you a moment ago, what does it look like? What is your gauge for telling whether someone's devoted to the Lord or not? Samuel shows us that the way we should tell whether I'm devoted or, or if we're helping each other on our Christian walk and looking at others, how do I know if someone's devoted to the Lord? Are they growing in grace? Are they growing in line with God's character and his work in our lives? Well, if devotion to the Lord results in growth and righteousness, then disregard for the Lord results in growth and wickedness. Hophni and Phinehas. Again, it's a scary thing that this passage does not highlight some wayward criminal nobody who robs and steals and murders and does all terrible sorts of terrible things. No, the Bible so often points us to the unexpected wickedness of church leadership. Scary thing for me to be preaching about this morning, to be totally honest. But I'm thankful for it. 
I'm thankful that the Lord is not going to leave any sin covered. And so you, church, should hold me accountable to the word of God. You should hold your elders accountable to the word of God. We should do that together because we do not want to grow in wickedness and find the fruit of judgment. Did you see what is going to come to these unsuspecting priests? They seem so oblivious to their wickedness. Notice in verse 25, they would not listen to the voice of their father for, that means because, by the way, they wouldn't listen to the rebuke of their father because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Yikes. Apart from God so softening the hearts of Hophni and Phinehas, there was no hope of repentance. There was no hope of confession. There was no hope of turning away from their sin. And God had said it in his will to put them to death. Yikes. Elkanah's family, marked by annual worship, a family devoted to offer their best to the Lord, stand in contrast to this family that has disregarded the Lord. And can you imagine from Elkanah's family's perspective and others that honestly come and want to live devoted to God, to have their sacrifices and devotions stolen away from them, right out from under them, for the sake of the leaders. We move indeed back and forth in this passage between beautiful worship, Elkanah's family, and insatiable appetite for sin with Eli's family. And that reveals our conflict in this passage. Because this isn't just something that we need to point out about the world around us, but something we need to examine in our own hearts as well. Disregard for the Lord brings growth and wickedness. We've already said. I wonder if you've noticed this in the real world in some easy kind of examples. Uh, There was one for me in recent weeks. Uh, We were at a certain restaurant And I noticed a gentleman walking from behind the counter back to the seats and then back behind the counter again and back to the seats. And, you know, every few minutes or so he was doing this. And I'm a nosy person, so what am I doing? Just watching him the whole time. And I noticed that he was going over and talking to this young lady. And increasingly, every time he would go, he would spend more time there. You kind of notice back there, I'm like, oh, people are still working back there. But here's this guy coming out from behind the counter back and forth and back and forth. And then it hit me. I was like, oh, this is like the manager, isn't it? Because who thinks that they have this right to go back and forth between work and spending time with their girlfriend and back and forth until ultimately they're just sitting there in the seats neglecting their responsibilities. These kind of things get under our skin, don't they? We don't like to see them. We know better. We know the value of good, hard, devoted work. And those that disregard that are not very much appreciated in our culture. Now, this verse 25 doesn't apply directly to this matter of the store manager ignoring his responsibilities and spending time with his girlfriend. But there is a stark warning of judgment that this wickedness results in when it comes to the place of our hearts and our posture before the Lord. If we are indeed devoted or if we are disregarding the Lord himself, the will of the Lord was to put Eli's sons to death. The sovereign will of God takes precedence over the actions of man. That is, that when God acts, it has a different value than when humans act. We can act in our own freedom within our ability, and God can also act within his freedom and within his own ability as well. Now, Eli offered them an escape. And in my little illustration about the the manager coming back and forth and everything, it would kind of be like this. 
Like another manager coming out and going, hey, I know your girlfriend's here. You really want to spend some time with her. I know it's not super busy. It just doesn't look good. It's not the right thing to do. You need to change this. You need to be doing what you are supposed to be devoted to. You're devoted for eight to five today to be doing this thing. You're not doing it. This is what Eli offers his sons. And a stark warning with that, of course, too. Again, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. You can go to the Lord to ask forgiveness for what you've done to another person. He's the uninterested party, as it were. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our sins, but he is the one that we kind of consider as less affected when we sin directly against each other, in Eli's eyes, at least. But his warning says, if you sin against God, who is going to intercede for you? Who can you go to when it is the Lord that you have disregarded at the place of your heart? And so in verse 12, if you back up with me, we notice that it's not that there's no chance to repent, but their hearts are hardened. And so they're given this title, literally the sons of Belial, meaning worthless men, because they were corrupt. This idea of, uh, of corruption and of worthlessness is what marks their ministry. This is really terrifying. They were worthless men, and the people of Israel could see that their leaders had disregard for the Lord, just like that store manager and all the workers there. It's funny, because you kind of see these types of things, and they're acting as if no one knows that they're doing this thing they're not supposed to, and that they think they're going to get away with it. But you know all the workers who are back behind the counter looking back, they're going, what in the world is Fred doing anyway? That's not his real name, just in case you know a Fred who's a store manager. The people of Israel could see with Eli's sons that they were acting wickedly, and they would even try to stop them. They would say, hey, let let them burn the fat first, verse 16, and then take as much as you wish. If you're just so hungry, then goodness, I don't want you to go hungry. That's understandable, but, but let me do what God requires first. So there was some resistance to these wicked practices, but they were met with further resistance and threats of violence. If you don't give it to me now, I'm going to take it by force. Is this the action of the shepherds of God's people that we should expect? What does this communicate to us about God? That God is a desperate, miserly deity in heaven who is waiting for you to give him all that he can to satisfy his insatiable hunger. Not accurate, is it? People of Israel noticed this. They saw their leaders and their disregard for the Lord, and they see why they had no disregard for the Lord. Look at verse 12. What was it that was the cause of their worthlessness? They did not know the Lord. They did not have an actual relationship with him. They used him for profit. It was, he was their career choice, as it were. And that was it. It's a scary thing, particularly as we think about priests having this attitude, but it's not uncommon for pastors, missionaries, teachers, speakers, people who like to stand in front of other people every week with a microphone attached to them to fall under this category. This is one of those things when you you have this amazing experience when you're 20 years old and you say, I want to serve the Lord with my whole life. I want to go, I want to pastor a church. I want to preach the gospel. I, I want to help people grow in their relationship with Christ. But then to realize that there are so many who have started out that way and ended as worthless men. Their disregard for the Lord brought them growth and wickedness because they did not know the Lord. 
So we've dealt with this issue in regards to the priests. We've applied it to modern-day pastors, uh, Christian leaders, and all those things. But what about us in our everyday normal lives? Is it possible that we turn worship in on ourselves, perhaps even on Sunday mornings, in different ways than what these worthless men do? None of us came here with a long fork ready to steal (laughs) from anybody's cooking efforts. But I wonder, do you come into worship on Sunday morning? Do you come to God's word? Do you go about your everyday life and everything that you do devoted to the good and glory of Christ over yourself? Are you looking for something to gain from Christ? Because that would be disregarding him. That would be moving him away from the throne on which he rightly sits. These stories that we have in the Bible, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, are written for our learning. And this one particularly is meant to stir up our disdain to deal with ourselves. Our disdain and our disgust at thinking about leaders that would abuse their position and and be so inwardly focused. You're meant to read this passage, church, and to think, that is so despicable, and I would hate the idea that my pastor or that an elder or that a deacon or anyone I know would be living in such a sinful manner before the Lord and other people. You're meant to have those emotions stirred up and then look at your own heart as well. Perhaps today we need to deal with our desire for control. All of us are leaders in some context. If we're not leading something in some way right now, we're being, we're growing into some leadership position, even if at the most basic level we are just self-leaders. And yet, within our hearts, because of our sin, lies a temptation to disregard the things of God and to cling to the things of ourselves. The fruit of disregarding the Lord is growth and wickedness. It's not a thing where we can simply say, hey, I'm going to just give this little corner of my life to myself. This corner that I know should belong to God, I'm going to give it to myself. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to make sure it doesn't grow or take over anything else. I imagine this is how Hophni and Phinehas started out. They didn't start out saying, hey, we're, we're sticking our fork in everybody's pots and taking whatever we want when they come to worship. Probably just started with one. Probably just started one saying, hey, that's a pretty good cut of meat. Or what else is in there? What does his neighbor have over there? And before they know it, this is their habit. This is their normal ritual. This is what they would call worship. Paul warns us in Galatians 5.9 that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That is to say that sin will not be satisfied with the little corner of your heart that you think you can rein it into. Sin will have more if you give it space. It will take more space in your hearts, in your lives, and it will pour over into other people's lives. Paul's warning in Galatians is about false teaching, of course, but sin and error are never content with the little bit that we give them. The result is judgment. The threat in verse 25 would be to put them to death is the Lord's will. Think back to Hannah's song in verse 6 of chapter 2. It is the Lord who kills and brings to life. And it is perhaps important for us to consider that devotion to him is the path to life is the way of life, and disregard is the way of death and destruction. And so we find ourselves in need of examining our own hearts and thinking, what are the things that I am building a fence around and calling my own that should rightly belong to God, but I know that the, the fence is breaking. It's got some cracks in it. That sin's pouring over into other parts of my life. 
And the truth is, is that David tells us in Psalm 51, he says, against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. You remember, this is after his inappropriate behavior with one of his best friend's wives. This was after arranging the murder of his best friend. And David realizes, you know what, Eli, you're wrong. In one sense, all of my sin is against God. And if God is the one against whom I've sinned, who can intercede on my behalf? Church, do you rejoice in the gospel this morning? Do you find joy and satisfaction in knowing that Christ, who was the truly devoted one, was disregarded to bring us before the Lord? That though we have disregarded God in our hearts and lived a life apart from Christ, totally disregarding the Lord and only focused on ourselves, deserving wrath, Christ has come in and lived a life perfectly devoted to the Lord. And he was disregarded for you. He took the consequence of your disregard upon himself. Samuel gives us such a unique foreshadowing of the devotion of Christ in this, in his young life. You can see a lot of allusions in there, I'm sure, if you do further study. But two things particularly this morning. Christ is the lamb who is sacrificed for us. Eli's warnings to his sons find a solution in Christ's intercession. Church, where we sit this morning under the grace of Christ, the fulfillment of God's work at the cross, is a place where we can look at Eli's question, where he says, if someone sins against God, who will intercede for him? Church, this morning, you have the answer is Christ. Christ will intercede for me. And he will not only go to God on my behalf, but he will be disregarded on my behalf. He will take the pain and punishment that I've earned and become the lamb sacrificed for me. The one sacrificed on the cross in whom no one can take a piece of their own, take something of their own from Christ sacrificed. He is devoted wholly to the Lord, the perfect, spotless lamb of God. And just as it was the will of the Lord to put these wicked men to death, so in like manner it was the will of the Lord to put our Savior to death in our place. What a Savior. Christ is the Lamb sacrificed, but he's also the priest interceding before God for us, saving us from God's wrath, not just saving us from ourselves, not saving us from the results of our bad decisions, but saving us from the judgment of God. Hophni and Phinehas had access to the benefits of leadership, but it led them to gross immorality. It led them to the disruption of worship for other people. But Christ's leadership reveals overwhelming grace, not only to his friends, but to his enemies. And complete access to worshiping the Father. Hophni and Phinehas stood in the way of people coming to God. Christ comes and brings you into his presence perfectly. Ephesians 2.18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Perfect access to worship because of his sacrifice. Hophni and Phinehas led by taking, yet John 1.16 says, from Jesus' fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And that sentence continues on into eternity. Upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Our Savior, our High Priest is not one who comes and takes for himself but gives himself for us. We need to see, church, that Christ is what Christ offers. 
That he is our sacrifice, unhindered by the selfishness of man. That he is our priest, unburdened by any need outside of the Father. We need to see the truly devoted one, disregarded by God at the cross, to bring us, as Samuel himself was brought, into the presence of the Lord before him to minister to him forever. Let's conclude. Paul, Samuel's life then was a life that grew in stature and favor before man and God because of the ministry God provided for him. So I'll ask you this morning, which ways are you growing? Are you growing in stature, in favor with God and others? Or are you growing in hunger for worldly things? It's an easy thing for us to measure in our hearts. What are we giving our time, our affection to? What are the things that we're truly devoted to that maybe we're too much devoted to and is resulting in disregard for the Lord in our hearts? There is no safe way to offer something that is meant to be devoted to God to something else. You won't survive that kind of lifestyle. But Christ has been sacrificed in our place. The need of God to satisfy justice perfectly has been done, has been completed. And his desire isn't just to make us exactly like a carbon copy of Samuel. His desire is to make you into the image of Christ the way he's designed you to be. Your unique personality, experiences, quirks, all the weirdness about you. We're all so weird, aren't we? God made us that way on purpose. To be unique. And so that in us, he might grow us into the unique ministry that he has for us. And that would be, if, if Brian, if you would move us to the last slide here. Um, three questions I would give to you this morning to consider how you're equipped to grow in ministry. Back home, one of the things that we kind of made like a mantra was who you are is more important than what you do. I think it's still true every single day in the Christian life. If we're considering how we're equipped to grow in ministry, to be devoted to Christ, what we're considering is how God is forming us Not just the talents and experiences and skills, but rather the character of Christ in us. So three questions, very, very long because I'm bad at writing short questions. What are you doing to seek the presence of Christ in your life? In your quiet time? Would you use verbs like seeking, praying, maybe even pleading, pouring out your heart before the Lord? What are you doing to seek the presence of Christ in your life today? And what might you do tomorrow? And might you also take a moment to just say, I know I'm not doing this great, but the Lord is great, and he's worthy, and I know he'll equip me for the growth that he wants to do in my life. Secondly, do you embrace the joy that you are no longer worthless before a holy God? We were right where Hophni and Phinehas were, weren't we? Self-centered, self-absorbed, focused inwardly. Do you embrace the joy that you are no longer worthless before a holy God? For all that God has done to bring you into the life of his son. Yeah, yeah, we're not worthy. God never looked at anybody and said, I really want to have them in my kingdom because they're really special. No, No, none of us fall into that category. But in Christ, we have now been made worthy in a sense. No longer worthless. Thirdly, how are you rooting out the corruption of wicked desires in your heart that leaven that's spreading, that, that corner of your life that you know, I should probably give that to the Lord, but I really want to keep it for myself. It's not going to stay within the bounds of what you said it. So how are you going to root out that corruption of wicked desires in your heart? Will you look to Christ? Will you embrace the joy of salvation? Because the sure judgment of God has fallen on Christ for you, for your freedom from these things. 
For freedom, Christ has set us free. Lastly, what opportunities do you have to declare the favor of Christ to others? Because Samuel's life was just that. The last verse again of our passage, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. I, I, I just can't help, I keep thinking of Gideon this whole time I've been reading this and him telling me the whole story of 1 Samuel and how we all can note that. Like, man, this kid knew this whole story during the children's message time. And we note that. We see the stature and favor of God in the life of a, of a kid. I mean, it's amazing. And this is what Samuel's life was. This is what every mom and dad want to see. This is what we want to be building in our church is a life that is growing in favor with God and growing in stature, building a reputation, not of perfection, not of sinlessness or at, all, at any way at all, but, but rather to just say, like, I know that God is working in the life of that kid, and that encourages me. But it's not just for kids. The way God is growing in you will encourage your brothers and sisters around you as well. So don't take it lightly. And don't take it lightly in the context of the mission that God has us on to proclaim the gospel to the nations. So is the presence, joy, and freedom of Christ pouring out as an offering for others to behold in your life? Pushing back on the disregard of God in our culture can only be done through this kind of devotion to the Lord. Not to us going and and constantly parading and and doing um, flashy things that the world likes to do, but rather through the effects of a changed life devoted to Christ.